So when the fiery arrows are flying and the fog of war is around you and you're a little disoriented, um, do you still anchor your trust in the Lord? Or do we become overwhelmed by our sorrow and our crisis? That's kind of the thought for today. And so uh, we just sing about it, we, we sing it, we want it to be true. I think we, as believers, um, strive for it, but practically living that out, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. But, but first, I, 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 again, make another just simple confession. I have a condition, it's called the next thing condition. Um, it's not necessarily good or bad, it just is, and most of you have the same condition I can illustrate it best with like technology. It's, it's pretty simple to understand with technology. Um, I always want the next thing. And so, uh, you know, I, I start dreaming, you know, for example, of like, you know, the iPhone 123, where, you know, the iPhone 123, when you get a text message, it pops up as a life-size hologram of that person saying their text message. I want that thing. I can see myself... Um, uh, and I mean, just who wouldn't want that? I mean, who wouldn't want to be in the middle of, you know, a seven-second kiss with your spouse and have, like, a life-size gene pop up as a hologram <laughs> and tell you, you know, the, the, the toilets of the church are stopped up? Well, why wouldn't everyone want that? And so I, so I save up all my money, all $10,000, you know, to, and, and I, but I feel good about it because I got $5 off. And it makes me feel better, like I got a good deal. And so I save up my money, I buy my iPhone 123 or whatever with my hologram, and it's awesome. And the first, like, you know, week, I've got it out, it's out in front of me. By the way, this is an exaggeration. Those of you who know me, you know I would never buy an iPhone. It's a matter of principle. But still, I got my iPhone out in front of me, and somebody said, oh, is that the new iPhone? I'm like, it is. It's awesome. It has holograms. And I'm like, ooh, and I'm showing them. The next week goes by, somebody's like, oh, is that the new iPhone? I'm like, yeah, it's pretty cool. By the time the second week rolls around, someone says, is that the new iPhone? I'm like, yeah, I mean, it is. But you know what I'm really excited about? The iPhone 124. Apparently, it has lasers that you can trim your nose hair with it. And who doesn't want that on a phone? And so I can't wait for my iPhone 124. Yeah, most of you are that way. Maybe not with iPhone, maybe not with technology, but there's something that is in us that longs for the next thing. It's just true. And I don't think that thing in and of itself is sinful. I, I think that desire for the next thing can in fact be a good thing. See, anytime we make the next thing anything other then God and his kingdom, that's when it becomes sin in our life. That's when it becomes temptation in our life. But longing for God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done, that's worship. That's worship. There is something in the life of the believer that longs, that longs, for the glory of God to be fulfilled. Let, I'm going to read uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read just a paraphrased version, okay? I, don't, I, don't, I hardly ever do that. 
This is one of those sections in Scripture that if you're reading it and you're studying it through word by word, it's one of those sections where Paul makes me feel good about myself because he's random and really choppy. And it's just kind of, uh, it, it, to, to see just in a small section, it's kind of hard to catch maybe just the theme of it. But I want to read it to you in just this paraphrased version, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, for instance, we know that when these bodies of ours are taken down like tents and folded away, they will be replaced by resurrection bodies in heaven. God made, not handmade. And we'll never have to relocate our tents again. Sometimes we can't hardly wait to move. And so we cry out in frustration, longing for the day. Compared to what's coming, living, living conditions around here seem like a stopover in an unfurnished shack. And we're, we're tired of that. We've been given a glimpse of the real thing, our true home, our resurrection bodies. The Spirit of God whets our appetite by giving us a taste of what's ahead. He puts a little glory of what is to come in our hearts so that we will never settle for less. See, Jesus' followers will never be satisfied until we are glorified. Until the Lord completes the work in us that he has begun, we are never going to be satisfied. And anytime we try to find our satisfaction in anything else other than him, we are setting ourselves up for a letdown. And it's why the Jesus follower does not accept the brokenness around us just as life. You know, people say, well, it's just the way it is. It is what it is. It's just life. See, the Jesus follower can't accept that because we long to experience the fullness of God's kingdom. Last week we introduced a big truth that gospel-centered lament is God-honoring worship and soul-shaping dialogue. And we made some general observations from uh, just a sampling of some of the one-third of the psalms that are psalms of lament. Psalmists crying out before the Lord from a place of sorrow, from a place of suffering, from a place of disorientation. How long, O oh Lord? Why, O oh Lord? When will you, O oh Lord? We made some just real general observations. Just a quick review, because this is kind of part two from last week. If you weren't here, the first general observation we made was that gospel-centered lament is an authentic longing for God from a place of sorrow or crisis. That's how we defined gospel-centered lament. Second, we saw that gospel-centered lament is practiced both personally as a believer and congregationally within God's family. These laments were both personal laments to individuals, but they gathered together, they read them, they sang them. The body, the church, shares in the burden of our lament. And third, we realize that gospel-centered lament acknowledges the brokenness of our current reality while desiring the glory of God's soon-to-be new creation. It happens within the context of both. And we focus our 
application, the, uh, the wrestling with a couple of big ideas, these implications last week around that soul-shaping dialogue, we, we saw two things. At first, gospel-centered lament demands vulnerability. We don't fake it with God. We can't tell God it's good when it's not. Second, we realize that gospel-centered lament demands dialogue. Here's why dialogue is so important to see in this. I'm sure that 90% of the time when I pray, I've got something wrong. I've just got something wrong. I, I don't understand the fullness of the circumstance. I probably even have some broken theology. I probably got a view of the Lord. I got stuff wrong even when I pray. And you know what I'm really thankful for? That my dialogue with God is not dependent on me having it all perfect before he gives me access to him. See, my access to him comes through his son Jesus, not through my holiness. Which means as a believer, as God is doing a work in me to make me more like Jesus, the conversation is constantly open. It means my call isn't to just get it perfect before I approach. My call is to vulnerable dialogue that my soul might be shaped by the word of God in a very real way conversation with the creator and sustainer of all life dialogue it's so important in this context and it's important because it is the difference of you having to approach the Lord with it all together versus you being able to approach him like a child saying I don't get it I don't understand I know your word teaches this, but I'm living in this, and, I, and, I, and I'm disoriented. I, I, don't, I don't have it figured out. Reveal to me truth. Give me wisdom. Help me see. Help me understand. I long for you. But we left an important question last week. How is lament, how is this Longing for God in this place of sorrow, in this place of crisis, how on earth is that really God-honoring worship? I, I thought worship just needed to be praise. Worship, listen, isn't manipulated when it comes to the Lord. In other words, you don't have to exaggerate it. You don't build it up. You ever pay someone a compliment? Let's just be honest. Lots of times when we pay someone a compliment, we like build it up, right? Doesn't matter who it is. Like, sweetie, you are the most beautiful woman who has ever lived. Just saying. Maybe may true for one of us. The rest of us when we say it, yeah. Child, you are so smart. You're like the smartest kid who's ever been, Right? We're, we're, we're building them up. Listen, here's how we worship the Lord. We just state the truth. See, when we worship who God is, we just acknowledge who he is. There is no more pure form of worship than just acknowledging who he is. And so in our lament, when we acknowledge who he is, we in fact get to worship God pure in reality, not in pretend, but from where we currently stand, where he has us. 
And so I, I want to walk you back through and, and point out a couple of things. We talked about gospel-centered lament is God-honoring worship in our big truth. That's a qualification for lament. It's the qualification that there is a longing for God. It's a qualification for where we take our lament. Also, how we measure our lament. Whether it's just us being drama, which, let's be honest, that can be it a lot of times. Or it is real dialogue with God seeking truth. And so i got a couple more just general observations. We're going to get into some implications of those. And I'm going to try to tie all this together at the end with a real prescriptive text that we all know that I really think you'll never read again the same after today. It's just incredible to see the comprehensive word of God throughout thousands of years come together. First, gospel-centered lament seeks the fulfillment of God's will. It is this wrestling with our longing for God's will. Gospel-centered lament isn't just, you know, about our stuff. It's, it's not just the drama. It's not just relationships or even our health. See, you're not going to read through all these psalms of lament that we've been talking about and we introduced last week. You're not going to read through them and, you know, there's going to be a lament about someone's camel. Lord, I need a faster camel. My camel drinks more water than all the other camels. It's just, a, I, need a, I need a better camel. It's not what you're going to see in these laments. Or you're not going to see a, a leaking roof. I need a nicer house. You're, you're not going to see this appearance-driven thing. Lord, I, I need to, you know, look like Thor. You're not going to see that kind of stuff. You're not going to see a lament over vocation. Lord, I want to be a blacksmith, and you've made me a shepherd. You're not going to see these kinds of things. Now listen, it would be real easy just to categorically dismiss all that stuff as just drama. To just throw it away and just act like if, if you're just there, it's just being selfish. But I want to take you back to last week, and I want you to know that whatever brings you into disorientation, whatever brings you into longing and suffering and sorrow, you have an audience with the Lord into the church. And so the reality is the rest of what we're going to talk about today, we introduced that from a very childlike faith last week. As we move forward in our discussion today, we're going to get a little bit more mature. We're going to look at some deeper qualifications of lament. But listen, if you're struggling because you don't have a new car, take it to the Lord. But take it to the Lord as dialogue, that he might shape your worldview. I don't think we see those things in the Psalms, not because there's no place for the individual to take them to, before the Lord, but because as the corporate body, which again, all those things are together in Scripture, are given to wait and give us a definition of what true, mature, God-honoring worship through lament looks like. And so when we're here, what I want you to catch is, man, there is a focus on God in these psalms of lament. They are ultimately about a disconnect between who God is and his will and the circumstances we find ourselves presently in. Let me say that again. These psalms of lament that are held up in the, in, throughout the psalms, these, 
described examples. They're there and they wrestle, the psalmist wrestles with a disconnect between who God is and his will and present circumstances. See, gospel-centered lament is a theological dialogue. God, if you are, why is this? God, if, if you are, how is this? God, if your will is, why is this? Or when will this happen? Let me, let me give you some examples. God, if, if you are just and your will is justice, why do I suffer injustice? God, if you are loving and you have set us up to love, God, why am I hated by my enemy? God, if, if you are merciful, why do I face your wrath? God, if you are present and holy, why is life so broken? God, if you are life, why am I surrounded by death? See, these are not just emotional reactions. These, these aren't just quick, simple things. Listen, this is some real theological lament. This is gospel-centered lament, vulnerable dialogue with God, longing for his will from a place of disorientation, suffering, sorrow, crisis. Let me give you some examples, okay? Let's, let's look through God is just. Psalm 13 these are all psalms we looked at last week. Verse 1, how long, O Lord, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Notice here's the question, how long? It's not what's your will, it's, are you really with the enemy or are you with, nope. We know God's will, God's will is for justice. So how long until your will is fulfilled is the question. Psalm 69 verse 4 more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. It's not even true. God, how is that just? Think about this. God is merciful, Psalm 123. So our eyes look to the Lord our God. Notice the focus is on God. Till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Lord, if you're so merciful, why, why am I pleading for your mercy? Where is it? God is love. Psalm 89. Look at verse uh, 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Notice the question. Lord, I know you are love. You've shown your love. But where's your love now? God is redeemer. Psalm 44 Verse 22, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Lord, you reveal yourself to be a redeemer. I need, I need redemption. Where are you? Psalm 69, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Psalm 79, verse 1, O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. Lord, that isn't, I don't feel like I'm being redeemed. 
I feel like I'm being abandoned. Do you see that their lament isn't just about their stuff? It's about a disconnect from who God has revealed himself to be and the present circumstances of their day. It's a theological problem. It's not an emotional problem in and of itself. It's deeper than that. See, lament wrestles with our disconnect between who God reveals himself to be and what we see in the world around us. It does not have to be this tear-filled emotional crisis. And there are some of you, you wouldn't admit it, but there are some of you in the room last week who you're like, yeah, I mean, that's for somebody else. I, I mean, I really am just good. I'm pretty stable. How quickly you forget. And even in those stable moments, let me just be honest with you, the greatest lament, the worshipful lament, doesn't just come from being overwhelmed. It can be an exhaustive mental crisis, an identity crisis, a wrestling with who God has revealed himself to be. And here's one of the things that I think is true about lament and why it's worship and one of the things that we miss. If we really dove into the word and studied to understand who God reveals himself to be, we would lament more the present circumstances of our day because the gap between him and us would break our hearts. We would long to be more like him. And we would say, why? When, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? And it would be worship. Second thing I want us to see is gospel-centered lament acknowledges man's sinfulness and depravity, his brokenness, while trusting in God's sovereignty and love. The psalmist acknowledges man's sinfulness and his depravity. Listen, Psalm 143, verse 2. Enter not into judgment with your servant. Listen, for no one living is righteous before God. I want you to catch the worldview of the psalmist as they write. It's important. There's no one righteous. Psalm 5, 9. There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. This is the worldview of man around them. Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. It started that way. Psalm 58, 3 and 4. The wicked estranged from the womb. The more... Listen, we've read this a few times, catch it. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me. They're all around. Brokenness is not an isolated issue. Sin is not an isolated issue. It falls on all of mankind. We are broken. The psalmist also acknowledges in the midst of this worldview of brokenness and sin, the sovereignty and love of God. We'll talk about God's love in just a moment, but I want you to see his sovereignty here. Psalm 47, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. Listen. Psalm 15, or 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. It's pretty simple. He does all that he pleases. 
Man in his brokenness does not thwart the plans of God. We can all team up. We still cannot change one aspect of God's sovereign plan. Psalm 75, verse 6. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. Verse 7. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. I'm just going to pause because I don't want you to just, some of you might just chase this into a rabbit and you might tune out. I don't want you to tune out. Listen. We can debate the fine nuances of how God's sovereignty and man's free will work. That's not what I want to talk about right now. What we have to do is acknowledge in this moment, the psalmist has a worldview that God is sovereign and in control. And nothing changes that. We have responsibility? Yes. God has given us choice? Yes. I don't want you to just chase how those two things work this morning because I don't want you to miss what is here in the context of lament. The psalmists have a worldview that we are broken and God is supreme. And so here are a couple of implications that are going to lead us to some application, okay? These are, these are so good. I'm so excited. This is one of those moments as just a communicator, I wish I was a better communicator for you. I'm so excited about God's word in this next section. I so want you to hear it. First, gospel-centered lament seeks action from a sovereign God. The address implies God is in control. In other words, there are these dialogues that the psalmists are having in which they question God. Why haven't you? How long will it be before you? Why have you allowed? Why have you done? See, Psalm 13.1, we, we read, it's the same thing in Psalm 79.5. How long, O oh Lord? The implication is, you can do something if you just choose. Psalm 44.23, why are you sleeping, O oh Lord? Psalm 44.24 says, why do you forget? 89.50 says, remember. The implication, if, if you would just choose, you can. Psalm 69 one says, save me, O God. Again, the implication is that he can. Why would we pray to someone who does not have the power to save? Psalm 123, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Why? Because he can. It's implied in their very address. Not only that, the description through these psalms of, of their issue and how they came to be acknowledges God is in control. Psalm 13, 1 and Psalm 44, 24 say the same thing. You hide your face. God hides his face. 44, 23, do not reject us forever. The understanding is that God is rejecting them. 79, 5, will you be angry forever? Psalm 88, 6, you have put me in the depths. Verse 7, you overwhelm me with all your waves. Psalm 88, 15, I suffer your terrors. Psalm 88, 18, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. See, gospel-centered lament isn't just venting. and It's not that. 
It's a dialogue with a supreme sovereign God that says, I am disoriented. Your word teaches me that you are this, and my present circumstances are here, and that disconnect, it's just blowing my mind. I can't get my mind around it, and I hurt. I hurt. So far in really a sermon and a half, we've been very general and we've chased descriptions. I want to jump into the New Testament for just a moment. And I want to read a very familiar passage in Romans chapter 8. And when we do, it's, it's a, a passage you're familiar with, but I want you to take all those random pieces that we've built up. The longing for the next thing. The importance of dialogue. Seeing God as sovereign. Trusting in his love. All these things that we're building up. I want you to see them, this description that happens throughout the Psalms, throughout the Old Testament, in the New. And I want you to see how Paul articulates them in just this doctrinal unpacking of what it is like to be in Christ. To be adopted into the family of God earlier uh, as described in chapter 8. Listen to this. Verse 18, Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the suffering of this present time, my present circumstances, the suffering, the sorrow, the crisis, all that's hard about it, listen, are not worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, for the glorification of what God has started in us for him to finish and to make us into what he has declared us to be, to make us and conform us to the image of his son Jesus. All of creation longs for that. If you skip down to verse 23, Paul says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. Here's what is being said. I know there's suffering. I know there's sorrow. I know there's crisis. But it's not worth comparing to what's ahead. My heart longs forward. Not just till I get my new camel. No, I'm, I'm looking way past that. I'm longing for God's will to be fulfilled. Verse 26, now listen to this, remember our dialogue piece. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We don't even know how to pray. We're messed up, it's, it, it's around us. The dialogue is over our head. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit is doing in us, in our lament, what we can't even do for ourselves. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those called according to His purpose, we can trust in Him. We can trust in him. In our deepest lament, our greatest sorrow, we can trust in him. Notice the worldview that's here. 
This is a God who we can trust in, who is in sovereign control of doing a work in our lives from start to finish. And nothing, nothing can stop that. Paul keeps going, verse 29. This is what he says. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's what Paul's saying. I'm going to start redeemed in Christ, not even knowing how to pray. And I'm going to have sufferings and sorrows in this present day. And they're going to distract me. But God is going to do a work in me that was set before the foundation of the world to lead me to where he has called me to be. To lead me out of my suffering to the next thing. To the final thing. According to the will of God. That's lament with depth. That's lament that is God-honoring worship. Man, I hope, that, I hope that hits you. I hope, I hope you can see that. Lament longs for God's sovereign work to be fulfilled from a broken place filled with suffering, loss, and crisis, from a place of disorientation, fog of war, not seeing clearly, and yet crying out to him with trust in him to give him the full weight the full burden of your lament. You don't have to pretend like it's not there. You can give it to him. Whether it's as simple as wanting the new car or it's as deep as having lost a child, you can take it to him. Because he is faithful. He is sovereign. And he is doing a work in you to lead you. And conform you into the image of his son. So one final question, and we'll close. How can I trust that he cares about me? I get it. He's God. He's supreme. But I'm like an ant. I'm small. Job says I am small account. I'm just going to put my hand over my mouth and be quiet. I'm small. The answer is pretty simple. Because he loves you. And he has proven his love for you. The psalmist understood that with less revelation than we have. Let's go back to Psalm 13. We've camped there the last two weeks. I'm going to read the whole thing now. Verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes. Least I sleep the sleep of death. Least my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Least my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Now listen. Verse 5, but in spite of all this, in spite of all the hurt, in spite of all the discomfort, of all the brokenness of my present circumstance, but 
I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Why the trust? Why the trust in the love of the Lord? If that's where I'm crying out, it's there in verse 6. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. The love of God has been displayed and shown. No more is this true than for us who we get to see the creator of all life love us enough that the Father would send the Son, that God would take flesh, He would suffer, He would feel pain, He would die on a cross and pay the penalty for our sin. Why? Because He loves us. Jesus Himself said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for us. What more evidence do you need of the love of God than that? God gave his life for us. So, church, I'm going to challenge you to a different type of response this morning. First, We're going to take the Lord's Supper as a church. The Lord's Supper is given as an ordinance to the church to remember, to look back and realize the love of God. There's something powerful about remembering the love of God and the cost of the cross. Some of you are in a season of crisis some of you are hurting you're depressed and you're filled with sorrow I would challenge you this morning trust in God he has a plan for your life he has a plan for all of creation it is a perfect plan and nothing can thwart his plan and you can have confidence in that plan because of the good news of the gospel, because God so loved you that he gave the life of his son for you. I pray that encourages you this morning. I pray that leads you through your lament to worship in pure worship this morning. Finally, if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, this isn't for you. This is for those who have placed saving faith in Christ, repented of their sins, cried out to him, and trusted in him as Savior. And as we take the Lord's Supper, I want to challenge you, just right there where you sit, maybe for the first time ever in your life, I want you to dialogue with God. I want you to acknowledge who you are and who he is. And my hope for you is that when those two realities come together through the supernatural leading of the Holy Spirit, you would repent and place saving faith in Jesus. That you would cry out to him and put your full trust and your full hope and all of your burdens and all of it on him. That'll be my prayer for you as we move forward into this time. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. You are great. You are mighty. You are sovereign and you are love.
Lord, I pray that as we set aside a few moments to remember the cost of the cross, that you would overwhelm us, your church, with your love. May it encourage those who are in seasons of lament. And may it lead us all to worship you. I pray this in the name of your son, the name of Jesus. Amen.